You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. American author Tim Keller says, If there is a God, we characters in his play have to hope that he puts some information about himself in the play. But Christians believe he did more than give us information. He wrote himself into the play as the main character in history. At Redeemer, we believe that Jesus is the main character in history. It's all about him, isn't it? This Sunday is all about him. Our lives are all about him. But this series, we're looking at the birth and then the public ministry. We're looking today at the cross and next week at the resurrection of Jesus, this main character, but from another character's point of view. So we're standing in the shoes of Mary. That's what we've been doing. Today, we're going to be standing in the shoes of Mary, looking at the main character of history, Jesus Christ, but actually focusing in on the cross. Um, You'll have noticed the worship and the words that have come through have dovetailed really, really well with this sermon. Today is pretty much like a Good Friday sermon. If you've ever been to a traditional church and do a Good Friday and then a Sunday sermon, today we're focusing in on the cross and not graduating yet to the resurrection. So today, that's the plan. But why focus on the cross? You might not be sure. So let me give you some great reasons. I mean, you might be asking, why is this gruesome, tortuous method of murder the main symbol on our books? (laughs) Why is it round people's necks? Why is it in our homes? Why do we break bread and have wine and remember such a gruesome thing? Why focus in on the cross? It's the most widely recognized symbol in the whole world, but why? Why do people love it? Why do we sing about it? Here are some reasons. If you are on a search For a topic with theological significance today, let's focus on the cross. If you want to begin to understand the love of God or grow to know the love of God more today, let's focus on the cross. It says in Romans, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to know a story or a scene or a moment that is at the very crux, the very core, the very root of Christianity, you need to look at the cross You need to go with us today and look at the cross. If maybe you have found out about Christianity knowing it marketed as about rules, you know, it's do this and don't do that. Today you need to look with us at the cross. If you've come to know about Christianity from what you've heard in the media or maybe from TV or dare I say it from Christian TV about health and wealth and adding Jesus into your life as an added extra, Come with us today as we focus on the cross as the remedy. It might be you've never seen the real Christianity. If you want to know how Christianity is unique among world faiths who reject the saving relevance of Jesus Christ, I mean, tell me of another religion that has their great deity humiliated and killed. If you want to see how Christianity is different from every other world religion, and also how it's different from other things that seem a little like Christianity, other cults and other types of faith, then today you're going to need to find and focus on what happened between God and man when Jesus Christ died. That's what differentiates Christianity. So you'll come with us to the cross. Paul knew to focus on it. He said to the Corinthians, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was like, come on, let's focus on the cross. And one more factor before we start that I have thought during the week as I've prepared this, we become maybe numb slightly to the cross, calloused. We can all too easily pass over it in a phrase like, oh, Jesus died for you on the cross. And that's true, and that's worth saying. 
But sometimes, maybe this week especially, we need to come to it afresh. We see the cross around a celebrity's neck in a stained glass window. We make the error of assuming everyone knows what we're talking about when we say the cross. But with a proper understanding and honing in today on the crucifixion of Jesus, we can be fully appreciating of what he endured. Without that, particularly in the light of the fact that he is God, we can all too flippantly talk about the cross. So today, as I say, we're going to be standing in Mary's shoes. Probably more accurately, we're going to be standing in Mary's sandals. She would have been in sandals on a plot of land outside Jerusalem, rejected little plot of land called Golgotha, which we already heard about, or Calvary, outside the city. And we're going to focus in. Now, quickly, let me just say there are three resources I recommend. Today is only quite a short talk. If you are here and you don't believe the cross even happened or the resurrection is a true event in history, let me urge you, after today's sermon, go away and find this book, The Case for Christ. It's 400 pages. It's about how the whole of this narrative, this part, the crux of Christianity, is a historical event. I'm not going to go into that today, but please, please, I urge you, find it. If you don't have it and you'd like to read it, come and find me at the end. I'll give you a copy. If there's 10 people, we'll buy nine more copies. If you're not interested in 400 pages, there's a 100-page summary of it called The Case for Easter. Same guy, Lee Strobel, who's a journalist. Please grab that. It's a little pamphlet. It won't take you long to read. It'll help frame this in the reality that it actually happened. And if you're a Christian here and you're interested in going deeper into what are the effects of the cross, one recommendation is Death by Love by Mark Driscoll, which goes into some detail about the cross. If you want any of those books, come and find me at the end. I can give you a copy or buy you one or will buy you one. Okay. Convinced that we need to look at the cross? Great. So what is crucifixion? Let's do this first. What is crucifixion? What is the cross? 500 years before Jesus, the Persians invented crucifixion. And during Jesus' day, the Romans perfected it, you could say. And for 300 years after Jesus, they continued to do it. It was the most barbarous, shameful, painful way to die. You know, in the English language, we have the term excruciating. That means from the cross. That's what it means. The Greek philosopher Cicero said that Romans shouldn't even talk about the cross. It's too much even to think about that murderous type of death. Josephus, an ancient Jewish historian, said it is the most wretched of deaths. To be crucified was to die a painfully slow, agonizing death by asphyxiation, in absolute humiliation and shame. And you know what? Even more than that, Jews in Jesus' day associated it very heavily with Deuteronomy 21, which says that anyone who dies on a tree or on wood, if you like, is cursed of God. So we're talking about agony. Barbaric, shameful, painful, slow, humiliating, excruciating death that gives a man a reputation as being a cursed soul in his last breath. And guys, that's how God became man, God with us, Jesus Christ. That's how he died. The more we understand it today and this week and in our lives, the more we will begin to appreciate what this particular death Jesus' crucifixion actually means and achieves. We're going to read a verse, um, but we're going to walk into this verse in Mary's sandals. Mary is um, late 40s, early 50s. Um, Her husband, Joseph, um, has passed away as far as we know, and she's just a widow. She's got no income. She's very much dependent on others. 
She's not been going really around with Jesus on all of his journeys and trips, but he is, she is here in Jerusalem now for the Passover, and she is a follower of Jesus. This is John's account we're going to read. Actually, you'll read in this story, John is standing next to Mary this whole time. So John's account is essentially Mary's account. It's a really helpful way for us to read it. John writes it as so. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, or in Latin is Calvary. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. We're talking about his tunic and his garments. That's everything. Don't be swayed by seeing stained glass windows. Jesus is naked on the cross. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, he's been very humble there, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home and looked after her. After this, Jesus, knowing that it all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We read a few verses later, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came up blood and water, a sign that he actually definitely was dead. It's a somber passage. Let me take you just for a second to a flashback. Imagine you're watching a film, it all goes black and white and we're suddenly in a flashback. Mary and Joseph with baby Jesus are now in front of a guy called Simeon. Anybody know this bit of the story? So Mary and Joseph are amazed as Simeon starts to prophesy and foretell the life that Jesus is going to have. The Bible says they were amazed at what he said. But then Simeon, right back in the day, 30 years ago, Jesus is a little boy, says to Mary, takes her aside and says this, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and also many in Israel to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God. Good news but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. So immediately you think of that passage and Mary standing, seeing Jesus on the cross, and you realize she's probably going over those words again. She's just starting to realize this is what Simeon meant. Men are going to oppose Jesus. And you realize that even before that spear is put into Jesus' side, she has gone through the agony of seeing her son killed. Not just her son, but the one that she knows to be a healer, to be a savior, to be the Messiah, to be the person that people are putting their hope in. And she there, right there, thinks, you know what? This is the moment that I and my soul have a sword. This is that point that Simeon referenced. So that's a little insight into Mary's shoes at the cross. But we're going to go deeper now. We're going to spend a few minutes saying, what else did Mary see? I mean, Mary didn't say any words. It's not recorded. You know, elsewhere, Mary sings a song, but not here. So all we can do is try and work out what did Mary see? The point of that for us will be to say, 
What is it like for us to come face to face with Jesus on the cross? What does this all mean? And then in a few minutes, we're going to look at why is it important? What does all this gore, blood, sweat, horror, hurt, emotion achieve? And I think at that point, hopefully you'll realize there's a good end. So come with me as we look at the reality of the cross. So the reality of the cross starts, okay, I'm going to start over here. Jesus, before he even starts his walk, is in Jerusalem. Jesus is exhausted. He's had a sleepless night. He's been tried by a ridiculously unfair, quick trial. If you see making of a murderer, it makes that look fun. I mean, it's so quick and it's so ridiculous. And he's beaten by a mob. So this is like Jerusalem stage one. And then a little bit later, then we find that Jesus undergoes something called scourging. And this isn't easy to talk about, and it's not something that you'll hear often on a Sunday, but Jesus would have been stripped naked and his hands tied above his head, held onto a pole. And the key thing is his shoulders and his back and his legs were exposed. An executioner would then, with a whip called a, um, a cat of nine tails, with maybe a ball on the end or maybe some little sharp bits of metal or bone, would whip Jesus, would whip somebody before they were crucified. And those little things would go into the flesh and you'd pull it out and with it would come some flesh and sometimes some bone. And this is Jesus before we even see what happens here. To be honest, this was so painful that men often didn't make it to the cross. They were killed there in the scourging. Jesus would have been in shock. He would have been covered head to toe in blood, obviously in excruciating agony. And in Gethsemane, Jesus has already said to his disciples, if I want to fight back, I really can, you know. He says, I could call down more than 12 legions of angels. I've got a personal army, guys. And we see him being scourged here, and he doesn't fight back. And it's for a reason that we'll see. So 700 years before, a guy called Isaiah prophesies, foretells, the suffering that Jesus goes through here. And he says this, that Jesus' appearance would be marred beyond human likeness. The reason I say that is to say that if you were Mary or John in this scene, by the time this passage starts, Jesus would probably be unrecognizable. It wouldn't matter that you knew what he looked like before. A battalion of soldiers then gather around Jesus and they put a robe on his ripped up shoulders and and put a bunch of thorns like needles into his head and hit him on the head to get the needles to go in deeper. This is all before he starts to walk, before this passage. They mock him saying he's claiming to be more than just a man. And the truth is, he is more than just a man. But he doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't fight back. This is Emmanuel, God with us, going through this. And so we join the story in John's narrative, with Jesus being forced to carry his own crossbar to his place of execution. This is 40 to 50 kilograms of rough timber on exposed shoulders as he walks to his own murder. We arrive at Calvary, where maybe Mary and John were already there, we don't know, to see Jesus laid down on this upright and have nails driven through the most sensitive nerve centers on his body in unparalleled pain. And the cross is raised up there and and now we're in Mary's shoes and we see for the first time Jesus 
on the cross, facing Mary and John. But this is public. This is really public. It's so hard to put in words that kind of make sense to us in the UK in 2016, but imagine it's the Broadway. I mean, there's a lot of people there and a lot walking past on their way into Jerusalem. But what they're seeing is a scene that none of us in this room could ever have seen with our own eyes, so graphic and gory. Someone painfully, shamefully, very slowly dying. Jesus was obviously bleeding. We read from accounts that invariably under the cross, around the dirt, would be a big pool of blood mixed with sweat and tears. This isn't a stained glass window scene. And as he opens his eyes through the sweat, tears, and blood, who does he see? Does he see all of his followers there? No. I mean, John and the Marys, but the rest of his friends have deserted him. What he sees is this. His enemies falsely accusing him, shouting, crucify him. He hears mockery. What kind of God are you? You can't even save yourself. He knows that everyone else has abandoned him now. Now, Jesus and these other guys, if they were like anyone else on a crucifixion, would probably pass in and out of consciousness. They'd be in the, in the sun, out in the dust, struggling, crucially, to breathe when they're slouched, but unable to push themselves up for too long because of the nails in their feet. I say all this, Mary is standing there. We don't know what, sobbing, probably averting her eyes. And she hears Jesus speak. And what is he saying over the top of those shouting, kill him, and cursing him, and spitting at him? Well, we heard the words earlier in this great poem. Jesus doesn't retaliate. He says things like, Father, forgive them. He tells the thief who's rightly being crucified next to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. In the middle of this horror, he is gracious and merciful and loving to the people around him. And he turns, and this is where it really comes into focus for Mary, he turns to Mary specifically. From the cross, there is one final way that Jesus like, materially, immediately can help Mary, his mother, and that is to provide her care. He shows his goodness, his love as a son, by ensuring that she was cared for from then on by John, who he trusted, really, really trusted. He wasn't so consumed by his own suffering to forget John and Mary. John would have been honored to take on this for Jesus. And Mary must have been looking, thinking, how much has Jesus met my need even in this moment? He's modeling, honoring one's parents right there and then, right to the end. So for Mary, this phrase that Jesus says to her is of some comfort. But let's not kid ourselves. She is unable to rescue her son. She is made to face this horror. She has been faithful as a mother, standing with him right to the end. And it, honestly, it might have been dangerous for her to be there. I mean, Jesus isn't popular in this scene. Pretty much everyone else has run away. But she is also coming to terms with the fact that she's seen loads of people around her, friends, family, put their hope in Jesus as the Messiah. You know, we don't read of Jesus giving her an explanation of what's happening at the cross. So for all we know, Mary is sitting there thinking, the hopes of all these people 
to have Jesus deliver us, those hopes are being crucified here as well. After three hours on the cross, Jesus died. He was taken down from the cross by his family and friends and buried in a borrowed cave-like tomb. And for Mary and those that have put their hope in Jesus, the darkness of this Friday was dispelled only by the light of Sunday morning. And we're going to leave that light till next week. I don't know if you've been on a Good Friday type sermon before. It is, I genuinely believe, good for us at least once a year to come to this scene again without Sunday. Just to say, this happened. This is real. This isn't a fiction. This is truth. So now the question we're probably all waiting for, what does all of this achieve? If you're new to this story, you might be asking, why on earth do you describe next Friday as Good Friday? I mean, what is possibly good about what I've just said? You might even look at the um, juice and the bread and say, why on earth at the end of this meeting are we going to remember this body and this blood? Why is this in any way good? I think if you're a skeptic, you've only really got two options here, that it really meant something or Jesus was a fool. It's difficult at this point in this scene to say Jesus was just a nice guy who didn't mean any harm. I mean, he said, I'm going to turn this world upside down and I'm going to die for it. And they killed him. I mean, that's not just a casual kind of nice guy, just a a nice, happy teacher. But obviously, I don't believe that's the truth that Jesus is a fool. Instead, I come to how the Bible crafts the answer to the question, what does this all achieve? This, rather than any other point in the sermon, should be the point at which you guys can say amen. This is how the Bible crafts the answer to what does Jesus achieve on the cross. It crafts it this way. Jesus was crucified in our place. Out of love, as the ultimate act of substitution, what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. Isaiah 53 says, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and he makes intercession for the transgressors or the sinners. Romans 4 says it like this. He was delivered up for our trespasses or sins. The great exchange. Romans 5 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 Corinthians 15 says Christ died for our sins. 1 Peter 3 says, For Christ suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Do you believe this? It means something. It's for us. It's in our place. 1 John 2 says he's the propitiation for our sins. Not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us. That's where we get the name of our church from. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This is in our place. Out of love. The great exchange. Jesus endured 
what we should endure. Jesus suffered what I should suffer. And today, that's where we're coming to. It should have been us. It should have been us. In three pictures, I want to do the great exchange. So I need volunteers. I've got a man in court. I've got a man who's a cleaner. And I've got somewhere a man who is adding up the numbers, an accountant. So can you guys just stand here for me? The great exchange, Martin Luther calls it. Substitution. You might know substitution from football. One person in, one person out. We're going to start here. A man in a courtroom. Jesus, and the Bible explains that, God told our forefathers, our first parents, if you sin, you will die. That's the penalty. Paul says that the wage for sin is death. So the penalty for sin is death. This is spiritual death, separation from God. This is physical death, cessation of life. Let me just tell you what sin is quickly. This is us not doing what we ought to do. This is us doing what we not ought to do, or not to do. These are thoughts, words, actions. The Bible, this might be news to you, says we have all sinned. If anyone says they're without sin, the Bible says you're a liar. It's that simple. So imagine that we stand to account for our lives. Imagine this day. And first of all, imagine it like a courtroom. So you're in court. But you're in court for what you've done in your life. You're in court And it's revealed that actually you have been worse than you have ever admitted. You look at the person next to you. We've all been worse than we would ever admit to that person. And there is a guilty verdict on you. There's a guilty verdict on anyone short of what? Anyone short of perfection. So there's a split right there between the perfect. There's only one person in that category, Jesus. And everybody else who is imperfect. We, and John in this case, he's dishonored and disobeyed and shamed and ignored and sinned against God. But what he's got here is his CV. He comes to God and says, look at all the great stuff I've done. You know, honestly, some of us think a bit like this. We think, you know, we're not all that bad, are we? We're not all that bad. We've done good things with good people overall. You know what the Bible describes our attempts to show God our CV as? It describes it as dung. Actually, it describes it as a word worse than that, but Pete's not here and I don't want the reputation of somebody who swore at church. So he says that what we're trying to do when our Father offers us forgiveness and we offer him back our CV is we're returning his free gift with a pile of dog mess. That's how insulting it is to God for us to say, actually, look what I've done. You can hold back onto those. Ultimately, there is no self-solution for John. It requires so much more than we can muster to be found not guilty. So much more. That gap is huge. Okay. Or we see it as our debt. So we'll come to Aidan next. Aidan's got a calculator. He's working out that he's in debt. Here's how it is. We're drawing out money all the time. We're indebted to God for what we've done. You know what? We owe every day and every minute of every day more than we ever have. And we're massively in debt as, the way, as a result of the way we've lived our lives spiritually. We try to claim that we're paying him back by doing good. 
But Aiden finds that what he's trying to pay God back with is currency that's dead. It's redundant. It makes no difference at all. It's a currency that doesn't even exist. And so he's not paying back at all. All he's doing is getting more and more overdrawn. Ultimately, Aiden and we are either fooling ourselves that we're getting back on an even keel, pretending that we're paying back for what we've done, or we're in total despair without hope on our own because we cannot pay back this debt. Either way, there's no way out. Spiritually, we're going to be separated from God. Physically, we're going to be separated from God. Okay, thirdly, how about we see it as a matter of our dirt, how clean we are. Rob here is a cleaner. So we look at ourselves and we think, oh, I've got a bit of a stain here, a little bit of dirt there, a little bit of mess there. The way I've lived my life, kind of got a bit scuffed, a bit scruffy. A little bit like Rob, a bit scruffy. But we think to ourselves, you know what? I'm not too dirty, am I? I'm fine. I'll be okay. Truth is, for some of us, the dirt is on the inside and we feel a deep-rooted sense of rottenness in our core. What, what can we do about that? How can we clean that? We can't. We're powerless to. On a serious note, there will be people here today who, when they hear the gospel, sometimes think, you know what? Actually, someone has done something to me. It's not something that I've done. And it is true that there can be a great despair of feeling defiled on the inside because of something that has been done sinfully to you. But either way, whether it's you that feels a sense of shame and dirt or something that's been done to you that the effects of sin have defiled you, ultimately on that day before God, if you think of it as clean and dirty, you're nowhere near clean enough. Nowhere near We could pretend that we're close enough to clean to be acceptable, but the standard is pure white. If we were to try and justify ourselves before God, we'd need to be perfect. Hebrews says that when Jesus went to the cross, he scorned its shame. If you feel shame today because of something that's done to you, Jesus scorned its shame. That sin may have led to shame and condemnation, but Jesus takes that away. So here's the end. Jesus, at the cross is God's way of giving us the solution. This isn't on that day a tactic or some kind of way of dodging God. That's not it at all. Instead, this is God giving us not just a solution, but giving us himself as the solution. Jesus is the only one who replaces you in the courtroom, takes the penalty of death in your place. You cannot offer anything to that transaction. Your efforts are ridiculous, but his sacrifice is entirely acceptable, entirely complete. And John, you're free. You can go and sit down. I think some of these are maybe going to need an amen. Jesus is the only one who can pay the full price for Aidan. To get him out of debt into ultimate right standing, you cannot begin to see how pointless your attempts are to pay back in dead currency. Listen to me, if you're a Christian, you cannot underestimate. You cannot say how small your efforts to pay back God for what he needs are. It's dead currency. It means nothing. But Jesus is payment himself as acceptable and complete payment. And you are free. Go and sit down. Jesus is the only one who can take the blotted, dirtied, rotten, inside and out, and wash it clean by taking the stains on himself. 
in exchange for perfection. We can try and polish up, but that's actually an offense to God when what he's done is given you the free gift of perfection. Guys, don't try and polish your life up. Don't try and say, you know what, I'm doing okay. I think I'm okay. It's disgusting to God. Instead, say, Jesus is my perfection. I stand clean. Amen? Rob, you can sit down. You're free. So, in conclusion, Jesus is the main character in history. We do not believe that he was just a decent moral teacher or an enlightened example. We believe Jesus is God who who lived the life we have not lived, died the death we should have died, and gives the gift we cannot earn. Tim Keller says, I am so bad that he had to die. I'm so loved that he was glad to. Does anybody here want to become a Christian today? That's where we're going to take it next. If you've listened to this and you think, that great exchange, that horrible death, but that great exchange, I'm not part of that exchange yet. If you are here today and you would like for the first time to have that exchange made, you can. You can leave here today free. You can. That's what Jesus' death has accomplished. I'd love to talk to you if you do want to make that decision today. I'd love to give you a free Bible, and I'd love to give you some of those books that we mentioned. If you want to at the end, please, please come and find me and talk to me. Don't be embarrassed. Each of us is realizing today especially, we've done nothing to contribute to this at all. Have we? We have done nothing to contribute to this. So if you want that free exchange, that real gift, Jesus offers it to you today. In a minute, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if that's the case. You've got, I'd say, 90 seconds to think about it. I'd encourage you to go for it. So in that 90 seconds, let me talk to you if you're a Christian here today. Maybe you've become numbed to the cross. Maybe it's just words. Just, they come on the screen just think, oh yeah, another song about the cross. Today, as we take communion, I want there to be a poignant moment as you realize two things. Please, as you take bread and wine, feel free to pray with other people and talk to other people about this. But for your own soul, think of these two things. One, humility. I did nothing. Jesus did everything. Aidan shared that so, so well for us already today. As we break bread, think this. I have contributed nothing to this transaction. And enjoy taking the bread, saying, I didn't do this, you did. And then this also. Joy. Everything he did is completely sufficient. Yeah? There's no reason anybody in this room today, if you've had that great exchange, has anything less than completely sufficient walk with God, relationship with God, standing before God. Humility and joy should come out of our understanding of the, res- of the crucifixion, even before we get onto the wonder of the resurrection. You guys with me? Great. Okay. I'm just going to pray, and then I'd like to ask for your hand if you do want to become a Christian. Let's just bow our heads. Father, we know we are so bad that something had to happen, but we're so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. We realize today we are worse than we think, and you are better than we think. That the distance between us and you is even greater than we might even have suspected. 
but we hold on to the fact that it is finished. Salvation accomplished. We don't need to pay you back. We don't need to suffer. We don't need to make it up to you. We trust in your son today. And whilst everyone's eyes are still closed and and heads are bowed, can I just ask, is there anybody here, anybody, who today would like to take away a free Bible and some books and walk out the door knowing I've been part of that great exchange? If anybody feels like that today, you've had a couple of minutes to think about it, will you just raise your hand right now so I can see? Nobody else is looking. Everyone else's eyes are closed. Is there anybody? Anybody else? Anybody else today feels like today's the day I want that great exchange? Bless you. Okay. Well, I'd love to pray for you afterwards, and now let me just pray. God, we just want to thank you so much for people able to come to you for the first time. We pray as they take bread and wine today, they too would know the joy of forgiveness and the humility of knowing it's all about you. Amen. I'm just going to hand over to Mark and Anna, who's going to lead us in communion.